Welcome to the Why Invest podcast. I'm one of your new hosts, James Carter, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. And joining me is the exceptionally talented Alexandra Buckenheerlis, also a Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Today, we are taking a field trip overseas, a long distance voyage to Central Asia and the Far East, where we will try to unpack the mysteries and indeed delicate art of investing in what some believe to be uninvestable markets. We will explore the key macro themes shaping the region in 2024 before getting on our hiking boots, bracing the humidity and discovering the most compelling current investment opportunities in the region. And for this expedition, Alexandra and I have made sure we travel in luxury by securing a tour guide like no other, our very own Elena Isakova. Elena is the lead manager of the £1.4 billion Waverton Strategic Equity Fund. Before that, she was the manager of the Waverton Asia Pacific Fund and comes with several years of experience traversing the Yangtze River tides, scaling the heights of Everest, and navigating the dunes of the Gobi Desert, all to find the best Asian equity ideas so that we don't have to. Now, disclaimer, I can neither confirm nor deny that Elena actually physically did any of those three things. And prior to joining Waverton, Elena enjoyed a brief spell at EY and graduated from Oxford University in 2014 with a master's degree in molecular and cellular biochemistry showcasing her profound love for the granular details. Lena, for James, sets the scene of the macroeconomic environment in 2024. It would be really interesting for our listeners to hear what sparked your interest in Asian equities in particular. Thank you. Thank you very much for that warm welcome. To be truly honest, it wasn't entirely by design. When I initially joined Waverton, it was actually to do a role that was split between global equities and a focus in Asia, sort of helping out on the Asia Pacific Fund. But fairly early on, there was a team reshuffle, and that meant that I ended up focusing on Asia primarily. But I think one of the main reasons that I spent so long focusing on this region is that there's always just so much to learn. And there's a vast variety of companies and markets in the region. India is completely different to South Korea, and that's completely different to the Philippines. So you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out each local market, each competitive dynamic. And I enjoy, (laughs) as you alluded to, kind of um, getting to grips with that. And I think there are also extra challenges in the region that make it more interesting. You can't always assume that there'll be English annual reports or English transcripts or even broker coverage. So it's a region that rewards you for going that extra mile, which I really enjoy as well. Fantastic. And setting the stage, we step into the year with persistent themes that have refused to fade away. We've got ongoing uncertainty around strained relations between the US and China, which we'll come on to, the current focus being a tit-for-tat protectionist policies and technology rivalry, which is casting a shadow over the wider region. That's despite some slightly encouraging news about Biden and Xi meeting in San Francisco back in November. And we also have the general slowdown in China's economic growth, partly due to challenges in the property sector and, of course, the Laden local government financing vehicles. We have tensions in the Taiwan Strait, which in my view may be the most severe tail risk to the global economic outlook for the remainder of the decade. And finally, since the region is so much more than just China, 2024 actually has a number of significant elections coming up, such as those in Indonesia, Taiwan and India, which could have wide ranging implications for the region's political and of course the economic landscape. 
Now, Elena, with these factors driving the 2024 outlook from a top-down or indeed a macroeconomic perspective, first of all, have I missed any? And secondly, what themes are driving the general outlook from the bottom up, would you say? I think that's a great summary, James. I guess from our bottom up perspective of the companies that we're speaking to, China especially has got a vast range of growth opportunities ahead of it. If we think about the wealth creation in the region of the last 20 years, average annual disposable income has gone from something like 4,000 renminbi in 2000 to almost 40,000 in 2022. With today's FX rate, that would be equivalent from going from $500 to 5000 As you can imagine, that's a vast shift in ability to spend and what you're spending that money on. So it has an impact on consumption patterns, it has an impact on businesses and industries growing there. And even if it's now a middle-income economy, lots of industries are still indicating that there's a long way to go. But I think the bottom-up, it could be really easy to get lost in the what could happen, that kind of blue-sky scenario particularly trending towards Western economies, it's very easy to say, well, consumption of X in the US is this, and therefore China's trending towards that. And I think over the last few decades, particularly with reasonably fast economic growth, high single-digit level, industries where the penetration of consumption was relatively low, the added benefit of broadly low interest rates has meant that the rising tide has slightly lifted all boats. Businesses and management teams get away with quite a lot, including relatively poor disclosure. Not a lot of focus on shareholder returns policies and investors generally were quite happy to just go along with it as long as the share price was going up. From bottom up now, the macro factors that you alluded to, now that times are tougher, disclosure and strategy matters a lot more. And from my perspective, as much as possible, I prefer looking for businesses that are trying to take control of their own destiny. That is to say, they can't control the macro, they can't necessarily control consumption spending or what their top line does. But there are other things that they can focus on that sets the business up, hopefully, to be better in the long term. And these are factors like capital intensity, how much do they need to spend on marketing and all of these kinds of costs that don't have obvious tangible benefits immediately? Can they talk about product mix, improving margin from that perspective? Are they looking at their debt levels? And all of these are little things that won't necessarily give a significant impact on earnings or free cash flow immediately. But in the next one to two years, if there is that discipline, that hopefully means that it's a better about the other side when things hopefully improve. And Elena, something that our clients have been thinking about and asking about is the nature of regulation in China at the moment. Do you have any thoughts on where this is going from a trajectory perspective? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really tough question. We can't really talk about China without talking about regulation. I mean, from my perspective, I would find it extremely difficult to predict any kind of scope or timing of new changes. China goes through these patterns of letting new industries grow, sometimes to quite a significant size, because part of understanding how to regulate is understanding the problems that that industry creates that you want to solve for. So you do kind of go through these boom and bust cycles almost, and there's a kind of delay of the regulation as a result. Some people do like to see patterns in the cycles. There is this kind of understanding that a cycle of every three years, there'll be a new tech regulation, whether that's on gaming or more broadly. I'm not sure even that's that easy to generalize. We've seen particularly in the last couple of years how quite strict regulation across sectors is having broad knock-on effects to the rest of the economy. I don't know that it's that clear whether there might be a longer delay or more regulation might come sooner. I think it's all a very fluid dynamic. And ultimately, there is a risk of regulation in the region and you have to balance that versus the valuations of the companies that you're looking for. And again, from a bottom-up perspective, we try to look for businesses that understand the market and understand how 
sensitive the industry that they're operating in is to politics and policy and that are open with these risks and are trying to take precautions. And management teams vary quite a lot in terms of how complacent they can be versus how realistic they try to be with the changes at one point or another have to implement. And I think even more structurally with regulations that we look out for, sort of positive green energy regulations and things that we would see as an opportunity for many companies in the long term, you have to be careful that in the short term, that's got a push and pull element to it as well. We've seen this year because of the pressures on local businesses, there's some loosening of coal power quotas in certain jurisdictions. And again, that's a symptom of when it's already a really difficult environment, let's make things a bit easier for the businesses. That doesn't mean that the long-term trajectory changes, but that can change your mid-term outlook potentially. So that's just something to be aware of as well, that the regulatory element is fluid in both directions. And I guess the bottom line from my perspective is that regulation is just very tricky. It's not something that I spend a lot of time trying to predict, but it's much easier to form a judgment on a management team and on their competency and their long-term custody of that business. And they tend to be more consistent as a result, for better or worse. And does the potential for regulatory change steer you to or away from any particular sector, the sectors that are more susceptible to that risk? Certainly, yeah. I think you have to be a little bit aware. For example, with some of the changes that we've seen in the education sector, that had actually happened quite gradually. And we had been invested previously in a company that provided basically private education in China. And we saw a regulation that changed how that entire industry could operate. Essentially, even private education companies couldn't operate for profit. So it wasn't such a big leap when a few years later, regulation came in for the after-school tutoring companies around the same element that education should be a right that's not an opportunity to profiteer. You've learned to build on some of these experiences and you figure out with time some of the sectors that are a bit more sensitive, a bit less sensitive. But, you know, ultimately you have to be conscious of societal impact of any sector that you're looking at. Another thing clients have been asking me and I've been speaking to them about, you know, we had the NVIDIA results recently, which showed some of the issues that have been going on in terms of the US-China relations and the issues for the wider sector. What are your views on that? Um, yeah, I think it's, again, it's sort of like predicting regulations, very difficult to know how far all of this will go and what the ultimate impact will be. I mean, in terms of the chips, the immediate result has been companies have stockpiled equipment and high-end chips. That will be a stopgap for the next couple of years. But inevitably, this means that China is being pushed towards creating self-sufficiency in one way or another. You know, we've just seen earlier this year that their biggest memory producing name essentially had to raise several billions of dollars to try to cope with these restrictions on equipment imports and basically try to figure out how they can manufacture on their own. And it's not obvious to me how long that will take, but that just seems to be the trajectory. And I guess the, the option is you either don't have chips and you don't have equipment to make them, or you spend a hell of a lot of money and eventually you hope that you'll get there. I just don't think how option A is even an option. So if we just broaden our horizon and look outside of China. Are there any other geographies that you have a preference for when you're stock picking within the region? Yeah, from our perspective, we do tend to gravitate to the most liquid markets. Again, even in, in the best of times, liquidity is your friend, especially when the macro becomes more challenging and harder to predict. We do 
try to find liquidity wherever possible. And that tends to mean that we focus on the bigger geographies, that's Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, South Korea. I guess what's interesting in South Korea in particular, there's been a lot more discussion this year as to whether they might follow Japan's example in terms of enforcing better corporate governance practices. And Korea has a history of lots of family-controlled, large, sprawling conglomerates that don't necessarily focus on shareholder returns as part of their strategy. So it's always traded at a bit of a discount as a result because you sort of understood that the corporate governance was that much weaker. So if that is an element that they can structurally encourage change in, and if shareholders can see evidence that management teams are becoming friendlier, I think that's a significant opportunity. I will admit it's not been nearly at the same top-down driven extent as Japan has, but there's pockets of evidence. I think the banks earlier this year all put forward sort of these medium-term strategies, which all had this focus on shareholder returns and improving shareholder distributions. So it's, it's incremental, but that's something that we're looking out for and hopeful for in the future. I guess the other thing that drives the bottom up is that the valuations do vary quite a lot. And if I had to broaden to geographies, it does tie to both things like liquidity and corporate governance, but there is quite a bit of top-down asset allocation happening in the region more broadly, even if it's not something that we do as a house from a bottom-up. I mean, my analyst was just out in the region for conferences in September, and she couldn't get any meetings with any Indian corporates. All of the meetings were completely full, couldn't get a foot in the door. But all of the Chinese company meetings had spaces, even for the biggest tech names that you can imagine. And we're seeing that in the valuations as well. India trades at a significant premium to China at the best of times, but that's really expanded and new peaks this year. And from a bottom-up perspective, where we want quality companies with a long-term growth opportunity, but we're paying a reasonable price for that, that does play a part. And that ultimately means that there are certain geographies that we might be more underweight than others. That's really interesting, Elena. And I wonder if that will remain the case forever. Of course, on the macro perspective, India has always been seen as a more friendly nation than China. And we've seen some friendshoring as a result of that go from China manufacturing towards India. But the big news gripping markets over the last few weeks has been the fact that there have been some potentially state-backed assassination attempts of Sikh separatists in the US. So um, I'm not going to put you on the spot here, but uh, that's something that I would certainly be looking at to see whether the geopolitical risk within India changes. I agree. I think India has a reputation of sort of being this democratic country, which is really friendly. All of the reports are in English, all of the management teams are always keen to speak to investors and all of that is true. It's a democracy, but the government has a, a lot more power um, than in a typical democracy to overrule the democratic process. It's one of these things that the media doesn't focus on India's relationship with Russia, even though most other countries would come under severe scrutiny about sourcing oil and all sorts of other things from the country. But India seems to have a benefit of the doubt, shall we say. So I do think from a geopolitical point of view, it's not for the region. It's certainly a an interesting country to focus in. But globally, there's still challenges there that I think it's worth being aware of. The world's biggest democracy and one where elections are coming up next year, as I said, but maybe a democracy with an asterisk attached to it. Elena, casting back to China, what specific stocks have been taking your interest and your research time up so far this year? Recently, we've been talking a lot more about our investment in Tencent. And I think this is an interesting name from the perspective of this is where 
to go back to companies that are trying to take their destiny into their own hands. To my mind, there has been a bit of a shift in corporate governance and focus on shareholder returns in particular. So as a bit of background to anybody who's listening, who might not be aware, they're the largest gaming platform, social media app in China. And they also have the second largest cloud platform. So all of those big techie growth tailwinds from advertising, from digital spending, from cloud enablement, that's all true for this company. And admittedly, it did have a tricky time in the most recent regulations on video games in 2021. But historically, this is a name that's generally played it safe in terms of the sectors where it operates and how it builds its business models. And management really have sort of a reputation for that and have in fact been criticized in the past for not pushing the envelope as much as they could have done. Where we felt it was becoming a bit more interesting is that during this tricky period of the last couple of years, both with the regulation and with macro, which essentially meant that advertising spend in particular in China was slowing down to a trickle, the management team really took things into their own hands and have doubled down to focus on margins of profitability and also on shareholder returns. And basically, within each division, they've really focused on the margins that they're delivering, where they can cut headcount, where they need headcount, where they should be reinvesting for the long term to the most profitable segments within each sector that they operate in. And the other thing that they did was they started to unwind a lot of the strategic stakes that they'd accumulated over the years in various Chinese and international tech names. Basically, this was always a bit of a strange capital allocation decision. It's what made us hesitate on the name in the past, is that often they would take minority stakes and kind of early stage businesses, and they'd sort of foster this, they'd call it a strategic partnership, where they'd help incubate this business. It would eventually list, and then they've retained a certain percentage stake indefinitely. That would sort of just sit on their balance sheet, and it was cash that went out of the business. And we effectively, from the point of view of shareholders in the past, would never see again. Now, what they started doing the last couple of years is divesting those stakes and basically giving them to shareholders. So they did this last year with their stake in Mate One, where basically they just gave the vast majority of the value back to shareholders in the form of Mate One shares. And that gave shareholders a decision of, do you want to sell it to get the cash? Do you want to top up perhaps an existing Mate One position, build a new position? Choice is yours based on your own bottom-up, top-down stock picking, capital allocations, decisions, whatever. And they had actually done this previously, I think in 2021, with their stake in JD. So from this perspective, for us, this was a significant shift because management didn't have to do any of this. They could have retained these strategic stakes indefinitely. They could have sold the stakes, given themselves a bonus, kept the cash on the balance sheet. There's all sorts of options that they could have gone with. But really, they've looked at what the share price performance has done. They've looked at the macro environment. They've said, actually, now is the time to focus on shareholder distribution. And we see that as taking a box of improving corporate governance in our view. And you know, in the long term, that also means that Tencent's capital structure should hopefully become simpler because more of these stakes have been divested. And it should mean there's an easier company to understand in the future, which is also positive. Have they still got a number of these, Elena, or are they near the end of this process? They've started from the biggest ones. So JD and Meituan are massive companies. They will survive with or without <laughs> this 10 cent stake. So they seem to be working through it. I suspect they won't do it with all of the names, particularly they've got some minority stakes in international game developers. I expect they'll perceive that to still be an important relationship to maintain. But I think with businesses that are more mature, they'll probably focus on that. Having said that, I don't have a crystal ball and they've not announced anything. 
I'll let you borrow my crystal ball at some point, Elena. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) With AI being the vogue topic of 2023, perhaps this is going under the radar in the West, which has been mostly focused on the likes of ChatGPT and Google's Bard. But Tencent actually released a generative AI language model of its own in September. Perhaps this takes us back to the chip discussion we had earlier. But how far behind the US is China in this AI race? And is this language model potentially transformative to Tencent from an investment perspective? That's a really interesting question because I think it's really difficult to know without having tested it myself, seeing it from a user experience, how different is it? What I will say about the focus of China on AI and some of these emerging technologies in the past is that even several years ago when I was doing work on a company called Baidu, and that's the equivalent to a Google in China, we were doing a lot of meetings, we were doing a lot of work on Baidu's autonomous driving and AI initiative. And sort of back in 2017, 2018, all of our meetings would conclude with the analyst or whomever saying, well, nobody buys Baidu today for the autonomous driving. And I think what's interesting kind of in the last year or so with the focus on AI is that some of these companies are seeing a lot more interest from that perspective and the investments they've been making. But they've been talking about it for years. And I think ultimately valuations are still driven by macro geopolitics and all sorts of other concerns. Again, just reiterate, because I appreciate your question was slightly different to what I've answered. I don't have a good idea of how far behind they are. But I think for a Chinese language model, they've probably got one of the leading ones. Okay. And I recall in 2019, this struck me quite close to home, that the Chinese authorities placed a restriction on children playing no more than 90 minutes of games on weekdays. And in 2021, they actually pushed that further to only one hour per day. I am someone who had a deeply misspent youth playing a lot of computer games, far exceeding that one hour per day. Sorry, mum and dad. (laughs) And I can't help but feel very sorry for many of these children that have been restricted, although perhaps I do have some sympathy with the problem the authorities are trying to resolve. But for Tencent, of course, it's the world's largest gaming company, and China not only being its home market, but also the world's largest gaming market. This must have had quite an impact on its earnings outlook. And how impactful was that? And have they recovered? I think they've stabilized. I mean, I think what is really interesting about this regulation is that if you imagine what they call the minors, so anybody under the age of 18, which is what this regulation pertains to, is not typically the people that spend a lot of money in game because they don't tend to have a lot of it. So actually... The vast majority of revenues that are generated from the gaming side are generated from adults. And I think for Tencent at the time, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but my recollection suggests that it was single digit impact for the gaming segment at the top line. So it was a hit. And I think it's more of a hit to sentiment. The question is always, could it go further? Could it impact adults and how adults can spend money in game and how adults can spend their time? And I think ultimately it's one of those things where you know, we in the West are, are sort of used to having quite loose restrictions. And it's one of those examples where the policy is just slightly out of step, even if they don't necessarily impact the companies that much. I think it's just something that investors struggle to wrap their head around. <laughs> and in terms of other sectors away from technology, I know one area you've been particularly interested in is the resilience of international travel and the recovery in domestic Chinese travel. Is that continuing to have a positive outlook for the next year? So we started looking at travel as a theme because we noticed that globally, that was one of the elements where spending was still relatively robust. 
And that's still an element of spending that's recovering in China from lockdowns only being loosened sort of end of last year. And the pattern that that seems to be taking at the moment is that domestic travel is recovering faster than international travel, at least for Chinese consumers. And again, we were just doing a bit of work in the sector in general. And we decided to introduce a new name to the portfolio, which is called Samsonite. For anybody who's not aware, but Samsonite make, distribute and sell suitcases across quite a wide range of price points. They sell these suitcases globally and they're relatively agnostic as to where you're traveling. As long as you're traveling, either which way, you'll need a suitcase. And we felt that on a global basis, A, it is a market leader within that suitcase segment, but it also gives exposures more broadly. It gives exposure to younger markets, quote unquote, such as Brazil, where there's also a longer term opportunity as well as the near term recovery demand story. Where we had concerns on Samsonite in the past is that they were quite levered, particularly after their acquisition of Toomey. And so that kind of level of debt was a bit of a problem during COVID for them, especially when travel went to zero and nobody was spending money on suitcases. But the last couple of years in particular, they've really focused on bringing this level of debt down. Their current leverage, I believe, is actually at the lowest level since the Toomey acquisition, effectively. And they've cleared up the brand strategy of what they're trying to achieve, of where they're trying to grow specific brands. They've improved their capital allocation from that debt perspective. And at the moment, they seem to be delivering above industry growth for a company that's trading ultimately on 10 times earnings. So in terms of the things that we look for in an investment, we think that that ticked the quality evaluation boxes for the fund and also gave us exposure to what we think is a relatively robust theme at the moment. And now Samsonite, unless I'm mistaken, was founded in Colorado. So it's basically a US company, yet it's listed in Hong Kong. Is that unusual? Um, It happens occasionally in Asia. I think there are a couple of other names, namely Prada. And I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but I think it's Lositan, which are both European names, but also chose to list in Hong Kong as well. I mean, the management teams of these sorts of companies will say that Asia is their focus. It's their fastest growing, most profitable region. And they want to be close to that market as a result and close to the consumer. And, you know, by listing there, they get more domestic broker interest as well. So I think from that perspective, they would say that that's a positive. They probably sacrifice a little bit of liquidity by listing in Hong Kong compared to some of the European or US markets. But ultimately, I don't think it impacts their operations very much. Now, we've probably got time for one more question. I would be remiss not to say the word bond in a podcast. So when I think about the world of fixed income and bonds, investors tend to demand a higher yield for the postcode risk of investing in a Chinese corporate bond versus, say, a US company. It's not huge, but on average, I would say a Chinese company with a similar credit rating to a US-based company may suffer a 0.5% or 50-bit higher yield relative to the US company. Does that translate to equities, i.e., Do you expect valuations to be far more attractive to reflect that postcode risk premium with these companies you've been talking about? There's definitely a significant valuation discount. I mean, again, to kind of hold back to the conference that I mentioned, we've heard some investors dub that the anything but China conference. You know, in recent years with the rise of geopolitical risks, we've seen more and more people interested in ex-China funds. And I do think that there's a population of the investment community I just think China's too difficult and that just naturally means that liquidity gets drawn away from it a little bit. I mean, it is difficult when you think about the valuation discount that you have to accept quite a lot of risks, a lot of uncertainty. But 
at the moment in terms of the discount. I think MSCI China currently trades on something like 13 times earnings compared to the all country world on 18 times. Some of the highest growing tech names, the Tencent, they're on low teens multiples, even though they give you exposure to the same AI themes, the same sort of digital spending, all of those themes that people are quite excited about in other names. But they're not currently being rewarded for it on a valuation multiple basis. And Elena, there are obviously things to worry about, many of which we've touched on in some detail. What's the thing that for you is the biggest worry for the region and the resulting stock market over the coming years? Oh, the biggest worry, the biggest single worry. <laughs> I fear there's quite a few. For me, it would be more intense geopolitical risk, I think, is the biggest uncertainty. And it's the hardest thing to model when you're trying to um, deal from a bottom-up basis of how it impacts the companies. Even to go back to the chip restrictions that we were talking about earlier, you might be able to guesstimate a trajectory for the industry, but knowing the timelines and knowing how that impacts near-term profitability and things like that, that matter ultimately to an investor. I think that's the bit that keeps me up at night. Elena, this was incredibly educational. I think I need to lie down. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining James Nye on this episode of the Why Invest podcast. And special thanks to Elena for her insights. If you enjoyed the episode, please do like, subscribe and share it with friends and colleagues. We do hope you join us again. The information provided does not constitute investment advice, and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.